The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Almost a year of fighting, bombardment, war crimes, death and destruction. Russia hasn't conquered Ukraine, but it hasn't been driven out of all the territory it grabbed from February last year either. Now there's talk of spring offensives from both sides. Once the weather improves, will we see Ukraine's newly acquired Western tanks seizing back much of the Donbass? Or will the hundreds of thousands of mobilised Russian reservists under their new commander regain the initiative and sweep towards Kiev? Or will a continued stalemate force a path towards unsavoury negotiation? And will Europe's first major war since 1945 continue to cause economic and political upheaval across Europe and beyond? We'll look at all of that this week on The Why Curve, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. More about them later. The Why Curve. Well, I do wonder what an unsavoury negotiation would look like. I, I, well, I, I can't see us getting there. I, I no, feel like this is a war be, that's going to go on for years. Well, it would be very unsavoury. The point being that no one certainly, well, certainly you in Ukraine, but also I think in Europe, mostly certainly in the US, wants to reward Vladimir Putin in any way. I think the idea that if you do, if you settle down, if what you does settle he do problems, ne- What does he do next if you do? What does he do next if you do? And it will simply give him time to, to rebuild and all the rest of it. Plus the principle, of course, that you shouldn't be able to keep things you've seized by force. Yeah. So that's that puts negotiation. And we, and, and we know Putin's objective. And, it, it, and is it just Putin? I mean, he's, you know, he is obviously decrying the end of the Soviet era, wants to go back to that. And how many other people feel like he does? So it's uh, hence the question: if it if if part of Ukraine is is given back. Uh, or is won back by Ooh. Russia. What happens next? Well, yes, and given back is an interesting. I tell you, that was the way he would see it. Of course, of course. But no, I, I thought, or, or restored. I think probably yeah. is what he'd say. Well, who knows? I mean, this is the the, the, the politics of Russia is one thing, but also just how are we going to get there? Because that is big picture stuff. But what about what happens in the next few months on the ground? Yeah, because this is going to determine things. We now know that there's been a pause uh, during the weather issue because it's frozen and then extremely wet and muddy uh, in Ukraine. Either the side of that frozen period but once things can move some of these tanks and, and these tanks are not necessarily arriving that quickly yeah uh, the, the the abrams the american ones to, maybe not till next year wow yeah and some of them you know it's it going to be the end of march before they see anything new i probably, think so, probably. so and but yeah, they have got a lot of new, other new weapon systems which were less talked about which which are coming from the west as well, well and they're in a pretty good position we think and the Russians, what the Russians are bringing to the table, we'll, we'll find all this out in a moment, but seems to be huge numbers of semi-trained reservists. Yeah. Which is its own issue. And um, the more they get through them, because, uh, I mean, a lot of them seem like they're cannon fodder. So the less trained they will progressively become. Yeah, it, it, well, there's a distinction here because you've got the ones who, who are with the Wagner Group, the Wagner Group, this military mercenary company, mm. and they seem to just been clearing out the prisons, and that is human wave stuff. Um, the reservists are a little bit better quality troops, we think, but how far they'll be able to do much. And what have Russia got to offer in the way of heavy armor, artillery, uh, s- smart missiles? They've used an awful lot of this stuff up yeah but the, the fact that we oh, i say keep on saying we i've got to make sure it's not our war <laughs> the fact that ukraine oh, it yeah. is our war though in reality it kind of the, is. The, the fact yeah. that you know the basically the west is fighting a country that is prepared to use people as cannon fodder yeah uh, it shows what we're up against and maybe prepared to, to win use something that. else entirely the n-word well, we've talked about that yeah. before um which is always a possibility so so lots to talk about and it's going to be the implications are so huge because 
because this is a war that's constantly cited, whether by the IMF or, or various governments around the world, as one of the main factors that are causing massive economic damage right across the world as well, not to mention the food supplies to uh, Africa and, and beyond. So this, this is a war that simply cannot be ignored. So the outcome, particularly in the next few crucial months, is going to make a huge difference to that. But let's bring in the man who really knows about yes. this stuff, the person who can tell us in some detail. He's Stefan Wolf, Professor of International Security at the University of Birmingham, and he joins us now. So, Stefan, I mean, this is a, a bit of an ideological war, isn't it, as far as Putin's concerned? And, and, and if you've got an ideological war, I mean, it's hard to compete against an ideology. It's, it's, it seems like it's a war to which there will be no end. And if, you know, we've been talking about how they are throwing people at it as cannon fodder. Well, the Russian side. Yeah, on the Russian side. And Russia, of course, has been in Syria for seven years now. It looks like that's a situation that's never going to end. Aren't, aren't we in the same boat here? Isn't this something that could just go on forever, seemingly endlessly? Well, um, let me unpack that uh, uh, a little bit. Uh, I think we are definitely in here for the long haul uh, in the sense that I don't really see any decisive military breakthroughs by by either side um, in the next couple of months and possibly not for another year. Um, so I think from from that perspective, you're you're absolutely right. This is not going to be over anytime soon. Now, the reason why it's not going to be over soon, I think, has less to do with ideology. I'm not sure that I would agree that for Putin, this is an ideological war in the sense that we had maybe an ideological war in uh, during the Cold War between uh, what was then the Soviet Union um, and the West. I think now this is a bit more... I think from, from a Russian perspective, it is about security, but it is also about sort of Putin and his inner circle still reeling from the demise of the Soviet Union. I mean, there's Putin's uh, famous statement that that was the uh, greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th uh, century. And I think that's still in many ways permeates mm. uh, Russian thinking. Well, that's the, that's the ideology I was talking about, though. I mean, if you look at, and you know, if, if he was to be pushed aside, who do we get? Do we get someone like Nikolai Petrushev, who's, uh, you know, another guy with a spy background and a view that, you know, the West is out to crush the Russian Federation and things are much better in the old days? That, I mean, that seems like an ideology which is entrenched in, in Russian government. Yes, but it's it's not sort of the the ideology of of communism. I think it's the it's the ideology mm. of uh, of empire, if you want, of being a great power. And um, so, so I, I think in that sense, yes, you are absolutely right. So there is a vision behind what uh, Putin is uh, is trying to achieve. Um, so I think from from that perspective, yes, this is going to be something which eventually will, of course require a political uh, solution, but this political solution will only be possible after, um, I think, much more uh, fighting on the ground. And, and where, 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 where does that come from? Because we don't have a Mikhail Gorbachev standing in the wings, do we? We don't have sort of like someone who could be a leader that becomes acceptable to the West that we are going to welcome uh, to, to to number 10. I mean, you know, it looks like that couldn't happen, you know, again in our lifetime. I mean, there's no one there, is there? Well, I think that, that that's a real problem uh, uh, in the sense that where we are right now is that I don't think 
anybody will really want to make uh, a deal with uh, with Putin. Um, and as you said, I mean, the alternatives are not necessarily better. I think Patrushev was would probably be one of the lesser evils, uh, uh, if you want. I mean, if you think of somebody like Prigozhin, uh, uh, the the head of the uh, Wagner uh, group, I mean, that, that would be by far uh, worse. Or if you think of Medvedev, uh, the former president and prime minister who now regularly excels in making uh, gloomy statements about the um, well, impending nuclear uh, Armageddon. Um, so, so I think there are problems with that. But then on the other hand, anybody who is not Putin could potentially uh, also be sold uh, uh, here in the West as um, somebody who might be offering um, uh, a way forward. So it's not going to be Putin, I think, but are the alternatives much better? So, Stefan, let's let's concentrate in then on on some of what you were saying at the beginning there, because you said that there's going to be a lot of fighting to go. Well, let's you you sort of suggested that the next few months are not necessarily going to be decisive. Um, a lot of people have been talking about spring offensive, the moment where suddenly the the, the ground is is possible to fight over in in a more con- concentrated manner. We know there's fresh armor and other weapons on the Ukraine side, fresh manpower on the Russian side. How do you see the next few months playing out? Well, I think what, what we'll see is probably for, for the next two to three months, there's going to be more uh, attrition on, on both sides um, in that um, I think both sides will try to keep the pressure up. They will try to probe for weak uh, spots um, in the other side's uh, uh, defenses. Um, and I think both sides need to um, get uh, forces, fresh forces to the front line. Um, I mean, the Ukrainians in particular now have uh, clear promises of more Western um, artillery, of uh, Western tanks. Uh, there are now discussions about uh, aircraft uh, as well. But I mean, all of that will require uh, training. It will require delivery. It will require setting up uh, uh, maintenance and supply routes. Uh, so we are still, I think, several months away from uh, Ukraine being in a proper position uh, to actually launch uh, a major uh, offensive. But that is also time that, of course, Russia can can use to build up its own forces, either entrench more deeply in their own uh, defensive positions or uh, potentially uh, build up enough forces uh, for their own counteroffensive. So Russia seems prepared to use people as cannon fodder. I suspect, assume that Ukraine doesn't have the, the same approach. They sort of value human life a little bit more. There's obviously a lot more Russians as well, and they can call on Chechens and, uh, you know, God knows where else they're getting people from. Well, they're getting a lot from prisons uh, and the Wagner group anyway. So uh, are Ukraine going to uh, run out of people at some point? To fight. I mean, we, you know, we were told that, you know, that these were a lot of people fighting were, you know, graphic designers and pharmacists and people who all of a sudden turn their hand to holding guns and seem to be doing rather well at it. But at some point, there's going to be a lack of population to fight in this war on the Ukraine side, isn't there? Well, probably not anytime soon, partly because, I mean, Ukraine is still a big country. I mean, we are talking here roughly uh, a population of uh, 40 million. So, um, not the size of Russia, uh, obviously, but then some of the manpower disadvantages that Ukraine has, it clearly is making up um, in terms of uh, Western uh, equipment. Uh, 
Western training, Western advice. Uh, but also, and I think that's really important not to underestimate. Uh, I think Ukrainians are far more motivated uh, to defend uh, their homeland compared to um, a lot of the uh, Russians, uh, especially those uh, newly mobilized. Uh, but I mean, even the um, the convicts who uh, are being sent to the front lines uh, on the promise that if they survive, um, they will uh, eventually be uh, released from prison. I don't necessarily think that is equivalent in terms of uh, motivation and what you can draw from that uh, to somebody who is um, defending um, their homes, their families, um, mm, their friends yeah. and relatives. And, and also, I mean, Russia, we, we're told, has got through a fair chunk of its arsenal of smart missiles, tanks, the, the sort of heavy armor, the equivalent in a way, I suppose, of what Ukraine's now getting from the West. So is it right to see it almost as manpower on one side and, and tech on the other? I think to an extent that is uh, probably true. But um, by the same token, I, I also think we, we shouldn't underestimate uh, the Russian capacity to um, to restock uh, their arsenal. Um, yes, we do not see the same kind of daily um, um, missile and air attacks that we had uh, in particular in um, October, November, December uh, last year. But then only two days ago or so, um, there was another massive uh, missile attack on uh, Kharkiv, uh, for example, the uh, second largest uh, uh, city in Ukraine, um, quite far up um, in the north of the country near the Russian border. So, so I think there is still... Um, more than enough that the Russians can can throw at this, uh, and they, I think, still also um, have the ability to procure material from uh, abroad, in particular from Iran and um, sort of the drones that we have seen from there, potentially from North Korea. Um, so I, I really think it's important not to underestimate uh, the the Russian ability to um, throw. Um, Equipment and, and technology, technology at this point. Yeah. So, how much of the technology that uh, that the West is providing are, is there to try and counter that? You know, for example, those drones. How much of it is to prevent Russia from from advancing, and how much of it is? I mean, obviously, the intent is to push Russia back as well. But how far do you do that? Because, I mean, at some point, you're going to hit the Russian border. And, OK, Russia's already invaded Ukraine. But we know that the moment Ukraine starts firing over the Russian border, and there's example, examples obviously denied that they've done that, um, then that, that, then that, that takes the, the whole war into a different place, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, – I mean, I, I would hope that it, it, it doesn't come uh, uh, to that. Um, I mean, one, one of the scenarios that, uh, that people have been uh, uh, talking about is that – Eventually, um, I mean, Ukraine has such clear superiority uh, on the ground uh, that um, the Russians would uh, sort of offer uh, uh, reasonable terms uh, initially for a ceasefire and then potentially for a political uh, uh, solution that would give them an opportunity um, to get out in a similar way in which they um, evacuated uh, a large part of their forces from uh, Kherson uh, last year. Um, but that obviously will will take time and it will cost uh, lives, it will uh, cost uh, uh, treasure, and it will potentially lay waste uh, um, to many, many more towns and cities uh, of Ukraine in the process of, but, um, of getting there. But what about an alternative scenario? The new commander 
of the Russian forces uh, manages to have a better sense of, of how to work what he's got. The Ukrainians, perhaps having been pounded so hard over so long, begin to fall back and then uh, maybe a, a bit of a retreat perhaps towards Kiev and, and, and Putin perhaps feeling that he can achieve some of the things he set out to do almost a year ago. I think that is less likely, um, partly because I, I think that would be very hard uh, uh, for the Ukrainians uh, uh, to do. Um, and it also would, I think, run counter to what um, seems to me is Western strategy in Ukraine now, which is to supply whatever it takes in terms of military equipment to enable Ukraine not simply to hold the front line where it is, but to push back, in particular in the east uh, uh, and the south of the country, not necessarily, I think, uh, right now contemplating, um, for example, recovering uh, Crimea. So I think that's a bit further uh, into the future. But um, I am fairly optimistic that um, there is enough both will to fight in Ukraine, enough manpower, and that there will be uh, enough Western support, both in terms of the equipment that is being delivered and the economic and political pressure that is being put on Russia and any of its uh, few remaining allies. Right, but that equipment isn't including fighter jets. So we'll we'll come back and uh, and look at, you know, just how much is too much? How much is too much Western support? We'll look at that in just a second. Uh, we had to stop there, Roger, because I couldn't help noticing, actually, that yeah. you, you, you keep looking at your phone. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it, it's because I keep all my money under the mattress and I'm I'm checking my web ca- webcam online to make sure nobody's broken in and stolen it. All right. See, I can tell you who's stealing it. It's, uh, it's no one breaking in. Opportunity. Opportunity. Stealing, yeah, that's what's stealing your money. The opportunity to use that money in a more productive way. Yeah, but it's comfortable sleeping on my money. Plus, plus I get to spend it when I like. Yeah, until it devalues, of course, from inflation. And the taxman comes along and takes a cut from it. Imagine if that money was growing, Roger. Imagine rather than being flattened from having you sleeping on it every night. Imagine yeah, if it so, was growing. So, so do you think I need to get someone to do something more with my money? Yeah, that is exactly what I mean, Roger. Well, you mean someone like Wigmore Associates. That is exactly, exactly who I'm talking about, actually, Roger. I mean, if you want your money to be managed by a boutique wealth management company that offers a high level of personal service, integrity and trust, you could do a lot worse. Well, let's turn that around. You'd struggle to find anyone better than Wigmore Associates. Exactly. 30 years plus of experience in investments, pensions, tax, and estate planning. And the very nice people. And that counts too, of course. So, Google Wigmore Associates. They are in Seymour Mews in London, West One. Tell them you heard about them on the Y curve. So, do you really keep all your money under, under the mattress? No, Just curious. No, no, no. This is an ad, Phil, and I'm reading from a script. And uh, from a BBC man, this is a world first, isn't it? Uh, and I was ad-libbing, of course, the whole way through it all. The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Well, we are talking with Stefan Wolf, Professor of International Security at the University of Birmingham, about the war in Ukraine, of course, on the podcast this week. And before that acting debut from Roger, uh, we were talking about why the West has decided to hold back on offering uh, some sort of air power uh, fighter jets. Uh, so, Stefan, is that just a step too far? Well, it's difficult uh, to say um, at the moment. I mean, the um, I think clearly there is a case that this would be helpful uh, to Ukraine. Um, I also think there are some very serious considerations um, on the part of uh, the United States and Ukraine's European allies. Uh, why 
as you said, this might be a step too far and might provoke um, a direct confrontation between uh, Russia and um, uh, and NATO. So, um, how would that how would that manifest itself if if Russia was to decide that this is now no longer going to be contained in Ukraine? What would they do? Well, again, I mean, it's. Um, it's hard to predict uh, uh, what would go on. And it's not entirely clear to me that that would necessarily mean um, that Russia would uh, attack um, either NATO uh, uh, member countries or uh, uh, NATO bases uh, uh, nearby. Um, I think it's in in many ways, it's more likely uh, that this would lead to a significant escalation in Ukraine, possibly uh, the use of uh, uh, tactical nuclear uh, weapons on the mm. ground uh, in Ukraine. Mm. Uh, and that might then in turn um, trigger the kind of response that, that NATO has talked about, uh, uh, primarily a, a, a very uh, severe conventional uh, uh, response uh, against, for example, uh, uh, submarine-based uh, uh, nuclear assets uh, of uh, of Russia. Right. So, we, so the West would then start to attack Russian assets uh, as as, yes. as a response. I think that's that's also an, an important distinction: attacking Russian assets rather than attacking Russia itself necessarily. Yeah. So, I think there would be a gradual escalation that would also allow both sides to. Well, at least manage an escalation and to step back. Right, but so, then Russia attacks uh, Western assets in response to that, and uh, and so I mean that is a real we're point in of a escalation scenario potentially. I mean the six. So Russia, what? So the Federation of American Scientists reckon that Russia's got six thousand nuclear warheads. So if we start attacking, that, there's a lot of assets to attack. In other words, that that is true. But again, I, I also think we we must be careful not to overestimate. Um, the extent to which all of those 6,000 um, uh, uh, nuclear uh, bombs, missiles, uh, uh, rockets are actually uh, uh, usable. I mean, Russia is not known for having kept um, a lot of its military hardware uh, well uh, serviced uh, over the years. Um, yeah. so, so I think it's uh, it's still going to be enough to cause significant uh, uh, damage. I mean, yeah. but maintenance, as you say, is not a major Russian. But, but um, it doesn't matter whether they're, but, whether they're working or not. But if we get to the point where we start firing on each other's but, bases around the world, then well, that that's obviously. I mean, I suppose, Stefan, I think what we're moving towards, and I just bring this through, is that we've we've heard in the past with conflicts involving the west where there's always been this idea that what you need to have is a sense of what victory looks like um to avoid mission creep as always the famous terminology that was used yep. now it seems to me hard at the moment to work out whether it's in berlin or washington or paris or london what victory looks like as far as the West is concerned. We know what victory looks like as far as Kiev is concerned, which is getting back its territory. Mm -hmm. But what does it look like, do you think, seen from Washington? What idea do they have that wouldn't lead to the kind of doomsday scenario we just talked about? Well, I, I think victory right now um, would very much be a Ukrainian victory, a Russia severely uh, weakened that uh, would not pose... Um, an immediate threat to to any of its other uh, neighbors, and I'm thinking here in particular uh, the Baltic uh, states, which are, of course, also members of uh, NATO and uh, the EU. But I also think we have to be realistic here uh, in terms of the fact that, I mean, even a Russia defeated will still be 
a very large, uh, quite significantly powerful uh, state, and it will have allies um, like China, like Iran, like Syria, North Korea, uh, not necessarily great countries, but nonetheless countries that um, in their combined um, sort of assets and uh, uh, and resources, uh, we cannot underestimate. So I think in that sense, uh, a victory uh, uh, for the West is, is not going to be something permanent, but it will still be something that I think will need to be carefully managed. And I think it will take some time before we get back to a degree of stability in in the international realm where we can you know maybe relax a little bit sit back and not be worried that it's hard to see how any of those scenarios you talk about actually lead to that stability because if russia is as you say severely weakened almost certainly that will lead to some upheavals within Russia. And this is a country with nuclear weapons, some of which might not work, but we know they have them. But potentially political upheaval inside Russia, which many people well, think makes things worse. Well, or, or, or does it? I mean, if there was, uh, I mean, if we fought the uh, the propaganda war, so we tried to get the Russian people to really see what was going on, because of course That's they... That's a are, very difficult option. Well, it is. I mean, but I mean, is that, do we need to try that? I mean, the, uh, for example, you know, the influence of the, the BBC World Service, which I understand has got some magnificent <laughs> Magnificent broadcasters it, on it, it allegedly. Uh, uh, if, uh, but I mean, it, the more you know, the shortwave transmissions get bombed well, by uh, attacks on anten- antennas in in Ukraine. But if we kept on with that war and changed the uh, the dialogue within Russia, isn't that going to be a more effective outcome than just throwing bombs at it? I think it needs to be part of it. I, I think the, I mean, there needs to be dialogue. Uh, uh, there needs to be conversation. Uh, with Russia, with people in Russia, with with people outside uh, of Russia. And I think eventually, much like during the Cold War, um, we may have to accept that um, there are fundamental differences in terms of how the Kremlin uh, uh, looks at the world, how the White House uh, uh, looks at the world. But that doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that... um, we will forever be in a state of of actual war. I mean, the Cold War over roughly 40 years, uh, we came to the brink quite closely several times. There were lots and lots of proxy wars that were being fought. Um, But in the end, there was always a level of dialogue uh, uh, going on that avoided the worst. And I think getting back to that stage where such conversations can actually happen, where people are willing to sit in the room, in the same room with senior Russian um, uh, officials, policymakers. Uh, I think this is where we need to get first. And then we can gradually reduce the distrust that both sides have into but, each but other. Is that even possible? I mean, it, it seems to me you, that also assumes a kind of monolithic nature in the West. And you have Europe and many of the nations of the EU, uh, maybe even members of NATO, are, are not necessarily going to stay on side in terms of that confrontation with Russia, particularly given the economic problems. But, it but also, isn't there a difference talking to, to talking to the government, talking to people like Putin, talking to fanatics 
versus talking to the population as a whole. So how detached? And obviously this changes the more that people are subjected to to propaganda. But it, but to what extent do they reflect the views of the population as a whole? And if they are at odds with the population as a whole, then surely you want to drive the conversation more with the population, which means you know trying to get them to influence their leaders. That seems like a, a, a better outcome. Or, or is the country behind them? I mean, it is, has, has that battle already been lost? I don't think the battle has been lost, but it's not a battle that we can win uh, ahead of the next presidential elections in uh, in Russia in 2024. Uh, so I think from from that perspective, again, we are we are in here for the long haul, and I mean it's it's difficult to I, I think to to think here in ten or twenty year uh, uh, timeframes, but um, I don't think a solution whether it's possible or not, just in general, a solution is not regime change in uh, Russia. I think all those efforts at sort of foreign imposed regime change, they have all ended in disasters uh, uh, over uh, well, for the past several uh, uh, decades. I mean, if it's something that is genuinely um, uh, coming from the country, from the population itself, then yes, it it should be supported. Uh, um, but I think to to have a strategy for regime change, uh, I I just think that that's not what what happened uh, during the Cold War, at least in in my reading uh, of the Cold War. Um, I mean that was always meant to okay, we accept there is a different type of regime in the Soviet bloc in the Kremlin. We are working uh, uh, with them for the greater benefit of um, stability and avoiding a nuclear confrontation. But picking up on that point I was making there, Stefan, about the, the, the mirror image of that, if you like, the West, the solidarity or, or otherwise of Europe, Britain, the US and the rest in the face of all this, because it's, it's quite a big ask because there are huge economic pressures as well as yep. military threats. Do you see, I mean, we know that Germany, your, your nation has, well, it certainly had us under pressure. Chancellor Schultz was being blown one way and then another within Germany and some ad- evidence that German public opinion isn't necessarily as solid in support of Ukraine as it is elsewhere. So do you think that solidarity of Europe, for example, is going to continue? I think on... And sort of in 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 the broader sense, it it absolutely will continue because there's far more that unites, uh, let's say, all the EU and and all the NATO members and sort of the non-geographical West, uh, uh, if you want. Uh, but at the same time, I also think that a little bit of uh, uh, diversity and difference of opinion isn't necessarily the worst things because I mean, you still need people who can actually pursue uh, uh, the dialogue um, and who should be able to pursue the dialogue without risking their own uh, uh, political uh, futures. Um, so I think from from that perspective, what we had during the Cold War, when we had, um, you know, countries like uh, Austria, uh, uh, Finland, uh, uh, to some extent, but, but also, of course, uh, uh, Germany, who did have reasonable working relations with uh, uh, Moscow? Um, I think that that was beneficial, and uh, so so I think I, I wouldn't worry too much about um, sort of differences of opinion. Not in terms of we need a secure and stable uh, uh, global order, but whether we can achieve that 
Yeah, take your point. If we're, if, we're, if, if we're too united against Russia, then who's going to talk to Putin? And uh, exactly. we, we get into a position of, of deadlock. So is the best we can hope for, then? It sounds like you were saying that really uh, we're not going to come to a, a quick solution on this. The, the, the best we can hope for this year, for example, is that Russia is pushed back. This war carries on. Or even on, contained. Is contained, yeah. yeah. I, we probably are not going to see Crimea regained, for example. But uh, maybe some of those other Will territories. Will it look much the same if we're talking yeah. this time next gonna, year? Do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, my my worry is that yes, that that will be the case, and and I think the, um, I mean, if you look beyond the um, just the military situation uh, uh, on the ground, I mean, you also have to bear in mind what that actually means for the people of Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, those Ukrainians who live under Russian occupation. I mean, that is a terrible uh, um, uh, life uh, uh, to lead now, uh, not just because of the fact of the occupation, but also, um, you know, the lack of services, the lack of uh, uh, education, uh, healthcare, sanitation, um, the constant threat that they are living on uh, under militarily. And you have exactly the same thing on, on the other side. So, I mean, yes, cities like Lviv and uh, uh, Chernihiv, they, they may be hundreds of miles away from the uh, front line, but they can still be attacked uh, by uh, Russian forces. Uh, I mean, Odessa, a world uh, UNESCO World Heritage uh, uh, site, still lives under the threat of uh, Russian attacks, including a, a potential um, uh, amphibious uh, uh, invasion. Uh, so, so I think all of that takes a massive toll uh, on um Ukrainian society on on the Ukrainian people, and I think we need to bear that in mind as well when we talk about well, there needs to be uh, a fight uh, uh, to the end. There needs to be a military uh, uh, solution. So um, yes, I think this will continue and this will go on. But at the same time, I also think it's really important to explore possible uh, uh, solutions that can bring an end uh, to the enormous suffering of the Ukrainian people. So what about the wealthy Russians who, you know, live amongst us? They probably have uh, nice houses in London. Some of them are actually living in them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're having... Fewer ho- than they used to be. <laughs> well, for sure. But they're having holidays in uh, in Southern Europe. And then we've got uh, tennis players, for example. So the Australian Open, the 20 Russians and Belarusians mm. are competing. Not in, operating in, under their own flag. Well, yeah, they couldn't operate under their own flag, but they could still play. And, uh, you know, so I'm not sure. Do we, do we try and isolate those people unless they uh, unless they sort of talk out of course if they talk out then they you know, as, as the Russian player Medvedev was saying you know if he talks out against Putin then his family is in danger but do we help them get their families out I mean do we is there a role to play for Russian people who are integrated in Western society and saying well you know this is this is I mean you, you, you didn't you know vote for this man necessarily but this is your country and it's creating problems you've got a part to play in this I, I absolutely agree with that but I also believe in the importance of uh, of individual choice mm. uh, so I think it's it's one thing to openly come out in support uh, of Putin which I think is is unacceptable uh, but I also think it's it's difficult that it's difficult to demand of people that they uh, should risk uh, uh, their own lives, that they should risk the well-being of uh, uh, their uh, friends and families still uh, living in uh, in Russia. So um, 
But I isolating think, Russia by saying, uh, you know, well, you're, you're, if, if you are from Russia, even if you're flying and, you know, you're operating under the Russian flag or not, uh, you shouldn't be in these events. Well, it's I mean, all they're part not of that the, Cold War we're talking about. They're really. not in the Eurovision Song Contest. I don't think that's no. going to make much difference. A, a little, but, I think. <laughs> but, but that kind of cultural, social, political Cold War needs to be there, you think, Stefan? Let, let's put it like that. I mean, it was there uh, uh, in the original uh, uh, Cold War. Um, but I also do think that, um, I mean, any opportunity, you know, to have exchanges, to have dialogue is n- not necessarily a bad thing. So even if you send or even if you allow Russian athletes uh, uh, to compete in international sporting events. Uh, and they do actually see a very united Western front against what is going on in their country. They are actually getting to countries where they do have access to uh, news that are not uh, regulated by, by the Kremlin. That in itself may not be a bad thing. It's hard to make a case either for or against it. And there are loads and loads of other uh, uh, political considerations uh, um, uh, amongst those uh, uh, as well. Stefan, as we draw towards the end of this discussion, which which has gone into a lot of detail on some various areas, overall your feeling is that what is coming in the way of weapons to the Ukrainians, Western tanks, Leopard tanks from Germany and elsewhere, none of that in the end this year is going to be a knockout blow. There is no real prospect of an end to the fighting and overall... We've reached a stage where endurance is more important than anything else. I think the endurance point is a it's a really important one. Um, I think in the end it will, in my view, it will be a political decision uh, uh, on on either side, um, and arguably on both sides, um, whether there will be an end uh, uh, to the fighting or. Or not. Um, I think militarily, both sides um, have enough manpower, have enough assets uh, to keep this going uh, for for quite some time. Right. And you've mentioned the word cold, cold war a few times. So, I mean, just a final question: Is that where we are? Am I, are my kids going to grow up hating Russia, for example? Are they going to be the enemy? Well, it doesn't look good right now, does it? No. Uh, I mean the the way in which both Russia has conducted itself. I mean, how Putin's uh, uh, regime uh, has portrayed Russia uh, uh, internationally, uh, I don't think we can completely dismiss. I mean, it has had a huge effect on how people see Russia and Russians uh, here in the West. But also, to some extent, it has had an almost opposite effect in, in other parts of the world. I mean, if you Look, for example, at the rekindling of the relationship between South Africa and uh, uh, Russia over the past uh, several months. If you look at uh, how uh, Brazil now was very clear during the visit of uh, German Chancellor Scholz there, they really don't want to be drawn into this. They really don't want to take a side. And I think not taking a side kind of at least gives Russia um, uh, the space uh, to continue um, uh, what it is doing. So I, I do think we are back in a period where, I mean, to go back to, to your opening uh, uh, question, where it does become much more um, ideological, uh, almost sort of ethno-national in a sense that um, the way things have developed uh, uh, in 
in and around Ukraine uh, will make it much more difficult, I think, to um, rekindle uh positive relations. And I mentioned, my, I mentioned my kids. I mean, the, the, just the longevity of it, the fact that, you know, they go to school and they see, uh, I think there's three kids in, in their school who've come from Ukraine. I'm sure that's the same in almost every single school yeah. in, in England, that these yeah. they will remember that through their childhood. And, you know, they, so this is a war that's war, not going to be forgotten in a, a hurry. war of generations. Stefan, thank you so much for being with us. Stefan Wolf there of the University of Birmingham joining us to talk about what's now been going on for almost a year and it looks like could be going Many on more. for a lot more years. Stefan, thank you. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you. So t- tell you something else that is uh, dragging on. What's dragging on? It's COVID. Ah, still yes. around. Still with us. I mean, it may not be as, as lethal as it was, thanks mm. to the injections. Along, yeah, you know, yeah, unless you're one of those people. There are people still who, isolating, people who, who haven't come out from behind that. People still wear masks, of course, in some cases. And there's people who are still supposedly getting long COVID as well and suffering yeah, from it. it's so. gone there for a while. And, and new variants, of course. All, you know, we used to follow all the latest Greek letters that dictated Omicron yeah. and Delta and all the rest of it. Um, it but seems China, China, well, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens in China. in China. Of course, yeah, yes. but but also perhaps not as deadly as they thought yeah. it was going to be. Now it's yeah, been yeah. let loose in China. Uh, you know, there was this fear that there were going to be new strains. Well, we don't and, know is the awful truth of China yeah. because we don't. They won't tell us. Yeah. Um, well, they are giving us numbers, but can we believe are. the numbers? And then That's how it. far are we connected with China and how far does it come to us and all the rest of but it? But we're getting up to the half-term holidays. And if you remember, uh, three, three years, years ago. ago. Yeah, that's when, uh, you know, We've all the rich people. All this for three it's years. the rich people in their Italian skiing holidays that are to blame yeah. for it uh, all. Yes, Otherwise, that, it would have, just, what we should it would have stayed on. in Italy yes. if uh, they hadn't bought it back. If only, there. if yeah. only. Uh, three years on, yes. Where are we with COVID? What state are we in? What threat is it? That's what we're going to be talking about next bit of, week. Bit of an update on the on the Why Care, brought to you by Wigmore Associates. So that's next week. See you then. The Why Curve.